Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1, or rejoin me, I should say, in your Bibles. We're going to go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father God, we ask now that as we turn ourselves to the exposition of your word, Lord, that you would illuminate the text of scripture for us. Father, we do pray that you would keep me free from error as we look at your word and consider what the Holy Spirit says to us and teaches us therein. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to mine out the treasures of your word this morning that are here in the text of Scripture. And that God, as we consider your hand and your works in redemptive history, that we would get a clearer picture of who you are and that that would bolster in us greater trust in you, Lord. And in trusting you more, Lord God, I pray that you would bolster in us a greater commitment to praising you and worshiping you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we do begin our <clears throat> study in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a wonderful book that uh, contains many lessons for the people of God. Historically, Nehemiah has been used uh, many times over to <clears throat> describe and encourage godly leadership. It's often used in leadership uh, talks in Christian circles to uh, bolster good, faithful leadership among God's people. And it's easy to see why that is the case. The book is, as they say, right for the picking when it comes to leadership lessons. However, uh, I, I do want us, as we begin our study this morning, to recognize that the story of Nehemiah is not primarily a lesson in how to be a good leader. The story of Nehemiah is primarily a story about God, as all of Scripture is. And more specifically, it's a story about God's faithfulness to His people. You can really understand the, the whole of the book with the following three-point outline. In the book of Nehemiah, we find that God's hand restores, God's word reveals, which leads finally to God's people repenting. God's hand restores, God's word reveals, God's people repent. You now understand the scope of the book of Nehemiah. But we're going to continue on with our study. In order to set the stage for seeing how God works in faithfulness towards his people, the book opens up with, with a background story. As such, that background is going to be the focus of our attention today. But it's often the case that background can be off-putting to people. You might be tempted to think of background as boring and just want to get to the meat of the story. But if that's you, then believe me when I tell you that there is much to be gained from background studies. And more specifically, there is a wealth of wisdom and spiritual insight available to us in this first chapter of Nehemiah. 
While the whole book is not primarily about leadership, this first chapter does provide for us some key insights into the character and the function of godly leadership. And so it is a chapter that we'll do well to pay attention to in order that we would know what good leadership is when we see it and that we would develop as good godly leaders in the various areas and spheres in which God has placed us in leadership roles. The two main things we find in this chapter are the care of a godly leader and the prayer of a godly leader. The care of a godly leader and the prayer of a godly leader. In order to set some context for the study, it's helpful to know that in in the timeline of the Old Testament, Nehemiah comes at the very end of the Old Testament era, before or just before the 400 years of silence that uh, predated the coming of Christ. God's people, the Jews, had been in captivity for the prophesied 70 years, and they had been released in waves to go back to their homeland. There were three waves of return of the Jews from captivity. The first was led by Zerubbabel, which is fun to say. He led the people uh, back to their homeland and led the way in rebuilding the temple there in Jerusalem. The, The second wave was led by Ezra. He led the way in reteaching the people the law of God. And we pick up the story with Nehemiah, who will lead the people of God in yet another specific way. And with all that in mind, we can now begin to look at the text. We read the text a moment ago, uh, Reagan did for us, and so uh, we're just going to dive right in uh, this week into the text of Scripture. As is typical in the beginning of most books, the opening of Nehemiah provides for us the, the who, the where, the when, and the what of the narrative that is to follow. In verse 1 we read, that what is written in this book are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Verse 2 goes on to provide the setting for us, saying, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. By this designation, we understand that this was the 20th year of the reign of who will later be revealed as the king Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah is in the city known as Susa, where the Persian kings would spend their winter months. But not only is he in the capital city, he is in the the citadel, the castle fortress, if you will, there in Susa. It's later in this chapter we find the reason for his being there so close to the king, and that is that he occupied the very trusted position of cupbearer to the king. It was his job to taste the food and the drink for the king to ensure that it hadn't been tampered with in a way that could harm the king. And the text tells us that in this 20th year, of Artaxerxes' reign, some men from Judah came to the city. And Nehemiah identifies himself as a brother of at least one of these men because he himself is a Jew who remained 
there at his post serving the king after King Cyrus had released the Jews to go back to their homeland. When these men come from Judah, Nehemiah asks them a question. And it's here in the question that Nehemiah poses to these men that we find the first mark of godly leadership. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So the first mark of godly leadership we see is that a godly leader cares for God's people. A godly leader cares for God's people. Did, did you hear Nehemiah's two concerns here? He's concerned about God's people and God's city. But the care for God's city, as we will see, is really subservient to the care for God's people. You see, a godly leader must care for God's people. Why? Well, because God cares for His people. We know that God's overarching and chief concern is for His own glory, right? <clears throat> but how has God set up the world to receive glory? Which through relationship with the people that He has made. We see this in the substances of God's promises to His people. The substances of God the substance of God's promises to His people have always been to His people and for the good of His people. These promises include things like land in the Old Testament, but that land only served the, position, served the, the, the purpose of positioning God's people to serve Him best and to display to the surrounding nations the favor of God upon them. That land only served to display God's glory that rested among His people. It was to help mark them out as distinctive. The land, you see, was never the primary concern for God. God's promises all centered around His people. And those who would lead God's people must recognize this and bring their priorities in sync with God's prioritization of His people. We find the greatest example of this, this leader who is minded toward and considered, considering, excuse me, minded toward and showing consideration for God's people. We see that kind of leader in the Lord Jesus Himself. You remember how the Lord Jesus describes Himself. In, in, in his revelation of himself as the Messiah, do you remember how he describes himself in John chapter 10? How does he describe himself there? He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. He goes on there to say, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus describes his work as the Son of God as fulfilling a role of service to God's people. Jesus cared for God's people. Jesus cares presently for God's people. Therefore, godly leaders are to care for God's people. And we can observe this here in the text from the prioritization 
that Nehemiah places on the people of God in his questioning of these men that come from Judah, and then in their response to Nehemiah. Look at verse 3 to see their response to Nehemiah's question. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. So Nehemiah finds that the state of God's people is not good. They are in distress. And they're looked looked on by outsiders in shame. Why? Well, these men tell us. In the words of these men from Judah, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now at this point, the natural question is, well, why does the city's wall play such an important role that its disarray actually would put the people of God in such disarray? And the answer to that is that in ancient ancient civilizations, a city's wall is what protected it from outsiders who would seek to do that city harm. Without walls, the city was vulnerable and it was perpetually in a state of instability. That's why Proverbs 25 and verse 28 draws a fitting parallel saying, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Just as those without self-control are continually susceptible to things that can destroy and exploit them, so it is with ancient cities that lacked walls to protect them. And you see, it's not primarily then the physical state of this wall that concerns Nehemiah. It's, It's what that means by implication for God's people. And what we observe from Nehemiah in response is nothing other than care and concern. Verse 4 says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah obviously had not been aware of the state of Jerusalem. In the days before phones and social media, news of distant lands was not so easy to come by. And it's likely here that Nehemiah had assumed that once the work of Zerubbabel had been completed in rebuilding the temple, he's likely to think that that rebuilding process of the infrastructure there at the city had just continued on in other aspects of the city. Now, whether that particular speculation is true or not, the, the news of this clearly was surprising to Nehemiah, so much so that it overcame him. It it brought Nehemiah down low. And it didn't just bring his spirit down low. He was so overcome by this revelation that it he took the position that mourners take, which is to be physically brought low to the ground. This is the, the natural response to things that break and crush our spirit. And not only is it the natural response of things that break our spirit, but this is a a ritualistic response in Jewish culture to to sit in mourning on the ground. Often you would hear in sackcloth and ashes. This was no fleeting outburst from an emotionally unstable man. This is deep devastation that 
brought on days of weeping. Nehemiah's care for the people set him in despair for some time. And while the weeping went on for for several days, it it, it, it didn't just stop there. It becomes clear later in the text that Nehemiah went on in sadness for several months thereafter. Nehemiah's care for the people of God was deep. So this news of their sad state struck him to his core. And, And that, friends, is what should characterize all godly leaders. Genuine care and concern for God's people. Not passive indifference. Not just obligatory acknowledgement of people's emotions. No, godly leaders display empathetic care for God's people. There are a number of things that godly leaders are called to do, but all in the context of loving care. Paul instructs preachers in 2 Timothy chapter 4, saying, Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Where does that patience come from that Paul speaks of there? Well, it comes from a commitment to empathize with others. One can't patiently care for others if they will not exert the energy to understand and identify with the needs of others. This is why the job of a faithful New Testament pastor can be summed up in four verbs. Preach and pray, love and lead. The leader of God's people must sincerely love God's people. Yet it's not only weeping and mourning that we see from Nehemiah. Moving on, we see that the second mark of godly leadership is care, I'm sorry, is prayer for God's people. Nehemiah's care for God's people leads him to prayer for God's people. Again, at the end of verse 4, we read, And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Fasting had become a frequent practice among the Jews during the captivity. Solemn fasts had been introduced on the anniversary of several events, including the anniversary of the taking of Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah fasts as he begins to petition the Lord God to change this situation in Jerusalem. As with his mourning, we see Nehemiah's commitment to fasting and praying to God on behalf of the people is not temporary in passing in nature. The text says that he continued in fasting and prayer before God. And while this is the the second mark of a godly leader in this chapter, it's clear from this text that this ought to be the first and primary action of all godly leaders. Nehemiah is is a book of action because Nehemiah is a man of action. He was not afraid, as we'll see, to get his hands dirty and to make decisions and to work. Such is the case with most men throughout history that we look back on with honor. It was one such heroic figure, Theodore Roosevelt, who said, For us, 
speaking of leaders, for us is the life of action, of strenuous performance of duty. Let us live in the harness, striving mightily. Let us rather run the risk of wearing out than rusting out. And the portrait that we get of Nehemiah is not opposed to that sort of mantra from Mr. Roosevelt. With one caveat, Nehemiah knew that action could not precede or supersede prayer. And thus, he did not only pray, but he committed himself to praying continually before the Lord. And that's the commitment that all godly leaders must make. Before we preach, before we lead, before we, we serve, because there are many capacities, many spheres of quote-unquote leadership, and many of them involve simple service. But before we preach, before we lead, before we serve, we must, friends, engage in the disciplined practice of prayer. This is the testimony of Scripture from beginning to end. All believers are to commit themselves to prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, calls all believers to it, saying, With all prayer and supplication, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1 expands the command out from just prayer for the saints to include prayer for all people, saying, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Prayer is of such importance that we find that when a complaint arose uh, among the Greeks in Acts chapter 6 about the system of daily food distribution, prayer was so important that the apostles actually instituted the office of deacons so that they wouldn't be taken away from their devotion to prayer. They would not be distracted from their primary leadership responsibilities. And when they describe their primary leadership responsibilities, what do they say? But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Prayer accomplishes many things, brothers and sisters. But, but perhaps the most profound truth about prayer is that in our praying for others, we actually imitate the ministry of the Lord Jesus Himself. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. You see, church, prayer is a privilege. Prayer is a command. And prayer must be the primary commitment of all godly leaders. Elizabeth Elliot captures the, the essence of prayer for godly leaders of God's people. She, she captures this quite beautifully in saying, Prayer lays hold of God's plan and becomes the link between His will and the accomplishment of it on earth. And this is true according to the way the Bible describes the function of prayer. It is the link between God's will and the accomplishment of His will on earth. And what is the role of a godly leader but to organize people in such a way as to bring about God's will on earth? 
Miss Elliot was on to something. Therefore, no matter how talented, how wise, how gifted a leader may be, they must be devoted to prayer or they're not fit to lead. But not only does Nehemiah set an example for us in his commitment to prayer, he also provides an exemplary, uh, exemplary model for prayer. Let's look at how, now at the, the content of Nehemiah's prayer. This prayer certainly it serves as a, a, a general guide in prayer for all, but those who desire to be godly leaders definitely benefit from modeling their prayers in this way. In verse 5, we read, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Nehemiah begins by exalting and extolling God. His designation of God as the Lord God of heaven is a, ref a reference to unrivaled, universal supremacy of the one who not only resides in, but made the heavens. He exalts God. This is how God's people have always been instructed and expected to approach God. With a big view of God that draws out confessions from us of His sovereignty over everything. In approaching God this way, His people are forced to make or to take rather a humble posture before Him. We cannot have a big view of God and a big view of ourselves, friends. It's impossible. One belief works against the other. We cannot have a big view of God and a big view of ourselves. So here, with this confession of God as great and awesome, Nehemiah puts himself in a humble position before God. And while Nehemiah here knows something of the state of God's people in God's city, this confession of the greatness of God also makes it clear that he acknowledges that he does not know everything about the situation. But God does. He does not know what all is necessary to remedy the situation or how to secure the remedy for the situation. But God does. Because He is the Lord God of heaven. Yet in Nehemiah's acknowledgement of God, he, he captures not only the, the great transcendence of God, he also confesses the imminence of God, or the, the close and personal nature of God with His people. He says that this is the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. And by this reference to God as the covenant-keeping God, Nehemiah shows us what should guide and direct our prayer life. You can hear him praying here the words of Scripture. Reagan, by the way, did a fantastic job exemplifying this for us earlier. And it's what Nehemiah calls us to do. You can hear him praying the words of Scripture. He says that this is the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Now, listen to the words of Daniel from Daniel chapter 9 and verse 4. There he says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. 
Sound familiar? And friends, both of these echo the confession that we heard in our Scripture reading earlier in the service from Psalm 25 and verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. So what's the point? Well, the point is that in our communication with God, the surest way to get our thoughts in alignment with His is to pray His Word back to Him. Nehemiah did not know what the answer to Judah's problem was. So so how was he to proceed in prayer then for the people there? How was he to even begin praying for them? Well, he could hold God to His Word and confess what God had declared to be true about Himself. Friends, some people may say that it feels disingenuous or insincere to pray God's Word back to Him. But using God's Word as our guide in prayer does not equate with a lack of sincerity. That's a matter of the heart. And just like when I talk to my CPA or my mechanic or my insurance provider, there are terms and concepts behind those terms that we must both be clear on in our communication if it's to be productive communication, right? I can use different terms with these professionals all day long. But unless I understand their jargon and bring my expectations into alignment with what they're telling me through their jargon, then I might wind up sorely disappointed in a number of these cases. (laughs) And praying the Scriptures is much the same, church. It's not so much that praying the Scriptures makes our prayers more effective, but it does bring our thoughts and our expectations into alignment with God's purposes and His own commitments. And it's only from there, on the good footing of acknowledging who God has revealed Himself to be and appealing to God's own Word that Nehemiah continues in prayer to God, saying, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. With this request, he, he moves to yet another fundamental element of prayer, which is the confession of sin. Verse 5 continues with Nehemiah, quote, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. And he does not merely speak of other people's sin as though he's categorically different from them. He personalizes his confession, saying, even I and my father's house have sinned. This is another refutation of the idea that praying the scriptures somehow depersonalizes our prayers. He makes clear that he understands that his and the Israelites' personal relationship to God is connected to what they are experiencing in life. And he's not ambiguous or half-hearted in his confession here. He definitively owns the sin that the people and that he himself have committed against God, saying, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. 
There are numerous things that we might take away from this simple confession, one of which is the personal nature that, uh, of prayer that I have already mentioned, but one that is particularly relevant in our day is the fact that we don't get to define what is sin and what is not. Nehemiah says they have acted very corruptly against God. And then he confesses how they've done so. It's by, <clears throat> excuse me, it's by violating the clear revelation of God's will that God made known through Moses. He, he couldn't be more clear about this. He refers to the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. The fact is that God has revealed what is right. We may not like it, but we can never say when we find our ourselves out of step, out of alignment with God's will, that He's been unclear about what He requires of us. It's the mark of an unbelieving heart that refuses to confess sin or, or that tries to redefine what God has called sin. It's the mark of a believing heart that confesses and repents of what God has called sin. And, and it's from that state, you see, of, of humble acknowledgement and repentance of sin that the believer can go on to plead the mercies of God. Which is exactly what we see Nehemiah doing next. Beginning in verse 8, look with me there. He says, <clears throat> Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful... I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. With this petition, we get down to the request that Nehemiah is actually making of God here. He's asking that God would resettle His people in the promised land. He's asking that, again, God would make His presence and His favor rest upon His people in a way that would be made known among the surrounding nations so that God's name might be glorified among all people. But notice again what he's doing here. Nehemiah is praying to God what God has already revealed in Deuteronomy. Specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 4. It's there that God makes the conditions of His covenant known to Israel. And He tells them that if they are disobedient, He will scatter them from the land of promise like He's done as these exiles have been scattered into Babylonian and then uh, now uh, Persian captivity. We've seen this promise of God, this Word of God, come to fruition. But, it's also in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that God makes known the possibility of repentance. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, the Lord goes on to say, the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you. Or forget the covenant with your fathers that He swore to them. 
And this is the, the, the glorious benefit, church, of pleading the covenant promises of God. When we understand what God has promised to His people and how He has decreed to fulfill those promises, we can confidently pray to Him in full expectation that He will grant our petitions. But we must be willing to accept and submit to the structure that He has set out for His promises. And we must reckon with the fact that God's covenant promises are only for those who have identified with this covenant-keeping God. That's why Nehemiah goes on in verse 10 to clarify that, that he is pleading the mercies of God's covenant promises for those who are identified as God's people. Look at verse 10. It says, They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. God delights to show mercy to those who are His. But His mercy belongs only to those who are identified as His own. That's why my heart is often unsettled and, and, and really aches when I hear someone engaging with someone I know to be a non-believer and some dear saint, well-meaning as they may be, might say to this unbeliever who is down about life, in, in despair perhaps, they might encourage them to pray and to ask God to reveal His will to them and to bless them and just see what God does. Ow, my heart aches when I hear admonitions like that. Because what happens is these people remain frustrated and they remain in this state of despair because their re rebellious heart refuses to accept the fact that the merciful promises of God for people on this side of the cross are bound up in submission to Christ as the Lord of their life. And when that rebellious heart refuses to acknowledge that, they're closed off from God's covenant promises. Yet the believer can rejoice at this reality because we know that according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, that for those trusting in the substitutionary life, death, and resurrection of Christ, all the promises of God find their yes in Him. In other words, all the promises of God are yes for those united to Christ by faith. And with that, friends... Nehemiah closes this chapter and his prayer with a repetition of his request that God would be attentive to the prayer of His servant and give success to your servant. Nehemiah here at the end is praying that his request would be answered sooner rather than later is the essence of what he's getting at. And that's where we halt our exposition this morning. We've seen much in this first chapter concerning the, the character and the commitments of a godly leader. We've noted the care for God's people that must be in the heart of a godly leader. We've seen the commitment to and the substance of prayer that 
must be true of godly leadership. And along with that, there's much for all of us to imitate about the posture of Nehemiah. In the weeks ahead, we're going to begin to see how God uses this faithful heart of Nehemiah to glorify himself in fulfilling his promises to his people. But for now, my prayer is that God would grant us grace to follow Nehemiah's pattern of care and prayer more faithfully in our lives even today in order that we would live and labor for his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there is much to process from this passage. And Lord, in in our own minds, and our own spirits, um, it's impossible for us to process it all, to apply it all to us. But we do pray, Lord, that your spirit would apply these truths to our lives. God, we pray now that you would, to greater degrees, conform us to the image of your one true great servant, your son, Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, we would display the care for your people and that you would help us to commit to greater levels of devotion to you in prayer. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.